Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation now, chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. With chapter 12, we come to the third and the final interlude, or parenthesis, in the revelation of the judgments of God contained in the seven-sealed book. As we've been pointing out, these interludes provide supplemental material that give important additional revelation and explanations that are related to these judgments and the history in which they took place. Now, there are five parts to this Final interlude, chapter 12, what we're studying right now, is the woman, the dragon, and her man-child, and her seed. Chapter 13 are the two beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, we have a vision of the lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion. This is followed, number four, by the message of the three angels. And number five, then, we have a vision of the harvest of the earth. What we have in chapters 12 and 13, which are a unit in this interlude, is the revelation of the war between Christ and Satan that is taking place in history. It provides the background that we need to understand history and the history of the persecution of the church. It particularly spoke to the first century church who underwent great persecutions during the founding era, during the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And let us never forget that is the context of the book of Revelation. And it is written to believers who were in that transition stage. And so as we come and we consider its teaching, let us remember it was written originally to them to meet their needs, to explain to them their circumstances and what was transpiring around them, particularly in regard to persecution, that is in chapter 12 and 13, particularly in regard to the persecutions they were facing, what was behind it, what was its significance. So we step back from the flow of judgment to give important revelation to the church. Now, of course, what was written to them speaks to us as well. For the things that took place in the first century are really a pattern for the things that are taking place in the 21st century and the centuries in between. And when we look here at this chapter and we see this warfare between the woman and the dragon, we must remember that war is still going on. Revelation gives to us the outcome of the initial phase of that war. And, of course, that was a very triumphant phase. And we live in that triumph, but the war is not over. The war will continue to the end of time in one regard or another, affecting Christians in one degree or another. So there's much rich teaching and theology in these two chapters on the subject of persecution. Why is the church persecuted? Who is behind that persecution? I mean, we look at the uh, figures in history... Uh, the men and women and institutions that were carrying out the persecution, but is there something behind those men and women, something behind those institutions? Well, these questions are all answered for us here in chapter 12 and chapter 13. As I said last week, really in these chapters, we're given a biblical theology of persecution. The source of persecution ultimately is Satan. 
The objects of persecution are Christ and his true church. The human instruments of the persecution are the two beasts. And I'm going to refrain identifying those beasts till we get to them in chapter 13. And then number four, and very important, who are the victors in the conflict of persecution? Well, we're told that in chapter 14, 1 to 5. It's the lamb and his people who triumph. Now, on the back of your bulletin, we have an outline of chapter 12. If you look there, we see how this all fits together. We're looking at the first section of the interlude, which is the woman, the dragon, her man-child, and her seed. There are three parts to this chapter. First of all, the hatred and the hostility of the dragon toward the woman and her man-child. That's in the first six verses. When we began that study last week and we came down through uh, verse 4 last week. So we're going to pick up this morning in verse 5. But what did we look at last week? First of all, we began with a vision of a glorious woman in the heaven, which is better translated as the sky. Scripture talks about three heavens. Third heaven is God's dwelling place, the throne of God, like we saw in the visions in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation, the throne of God and the glory of it. It's the third heaven. But there's also the starry heavens and there's also the atmospheric heavens. In the starry heavens, the sun, moon, and stars. In the atmospheric heaven, we have the, we have the, the weather, which we particularly see in terms of the, of the sun, the wind, uh, not the sun, excuse me, the clouds, the wind, the snow, the rain, all of those things that so affect our lives. And we noted that this vision is then put on the uh, backdrop of the sky which includes here the two heavens, the atmospheric and the starry heavens. This is not about the third heaven. When you see heaven in this chapter, do not think of God's dwelling place. But think of the creation of God, the starry heavens and the atmosphere. And so what is the basis then of this vision being placed upon that easel, that backdrop? Well, as we defined it last week, heaven controls life on earth. And I'm not talking about God in heaven, which ultimately controls everything. But he has put the earth under the power of the starry heaven and the atmospheric heaven in the sense that it affects our lives dramatically. Seasons, did that affect you? Summer and winter, spring and harvest. Is there any? Of course, we live by the movements of the seasons. Darkness and lights, daytime and nighttime, droughts, floods, hurricanes, uh, the tides of the moon, as far as the tides affected by the moon here on earth. Everything is affected greatly by the heaven. I concluded last week that I believe the heaven here is a symbol of the place of control over life on earth. I believe that's the symbolism here. And if we keep that in mind, this chapter will make sense. And so there's a battle for the control of life on earth. That's what it's about. And the battle for control on life life on earth is between the woman and her man-child and Satan. We identified the woman last week, as being a figure, a symbol of the church of God, the true church, which began in the Old Testament, 
with the very earliest believers and developed through to Abraham and to the 12 tribes of Israel and the true believers within that covenant nation made up the church of our God. And then the church on the day of Pentecost entered into its New Testament phase with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the Jew and Gentile in one body of the church. And so this is a vision of the woman, the church of God, who is with child, verse 2. And we identified this with child as a reference to the ultimate outcome of history being determined by the seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent. And so the history of Israel, the history of the Old Testament church, is this long history of travailing and preparing for the delivery of that seed who will crush the head of the serpent. And so this is the vision. He says in verse 3, there was another wonder in heaven, an amazing thing, a great red dragon. And this is a picture of the devil himself. Verse 9 says the great dragon was cast out. Now who's that dragon? It goes on to say the old serpent called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. And so this is the, these are the combatants of history. And we, we come then, um, let me read down through verse to verse 5. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, pain to be delivered. That's old, all Old Testament history summarized in one verse. All the pains and all the sorrows and all the sufferings, all the discipline, all the ups and downs of Israel was preparing them for this moment in history when they would bring forth the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for devour her child as soon as it was born. Remember we surveyed back in the Old Testament all the times that Satan sought to kill the seed of the woman. He did not know who the Messiah would be. In fact, we we noted that in the very first instance of this, we had Abel and we had Cain. Abel was a godly man, and the, the serpent, Satan, saw this, and he became very suspicious that this was the seed of the woman who was going to crush his head. And so he stirred up his uh, minion, his servant, this evil Cain, to kill the seed of the woman. And all through the Old Testament, we see examples of that. Remember how Pharaoh wanted to kill all the male children of Israel? Well, who was behind that? It was the devil. He figures if I kill all the male children, then the woman won't bring forth a male child to crush my head. And we surveyed a number of situations in that regard. And we we concluded our message with a survey of these many different attempts in the Old Testament that we see the Satan to destroy either the woman, because if he kills the woman, then she can't have a seed. But he can't seem to kill the woman, so he focuses on killing the man-child that he fears that God said would crush his head. And so we saw in verse 4 that he was always ready to devour her child. 
as soon as it was born. So it could not grow and become that seed that would crush his head. That brings us to to verse 5, where we have the birth of the child of the woman and his ascension to the throne of God. In other words, this birth fulfills that ancient prophecy from Genesis about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. All Old Testament history has flowed forth, and here we are now. She's ready to be delivered. We're in the first century, the end of the B.C. We're coming to the A.D. We're coming to the time of Christ. And it says this, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So in verse 5, we have this great picture in the vision of the birth of the child of the woman and his triumph over the dragon. It says, she brought forth a man-child. Now when we think of this, obviously who comes to mind? Mary, right? Mary was the mother, the Virgin Mary was the mother of Jesus. And we think that the she here being referred to as Mary, but not really. Not specifically. It's not talking about Mary specifically. It's talking about the woman. It's talking about the church. And so, of course, Mary is in view, but only as a member of the church, as a member of the family of the the woman, who is the symbol of the church. In other words, Mary was a part of the Messianic community that made up the true church that brought forth Jesus. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, particularly, light is shed on this community. And it was from the the, the womb of the believing Jews, the believing Israelites, that the Messiah came. And Mary was the chosen instrument for the very physical uh, work of carrying the child and delivering the child. But she wasn't alone. There was also a Joseph who was of this messianic community. There was the Zacharias and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. There were the humble shepherds of Bethlehem who received the announcement of Christ's birth and came to see the Christ child and then went their way, glorifying and praising God for all the things which they had heard and seen as it was told to them. Then there was Simeon, who was a just and devout man, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him, and it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he took the child, Jesus, in his arms and blessed God for letting him see the Christ. Then there was Anna. These are the ones revealed to us in, the, in the Matthew and Luke of this messianic community who were waiting for the Christ child. There was Anna, it says, who departed not from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayers night and day, who when she saw Jesus gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spoke to him of all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. This group that is highlighted for us, Mary, Joseph, Zacharias, Elizabeth, and so on. These are representatives of the true Israel of God. And it is, in a sense, it was through the womb of the church that Jesus was brought into this world, not just through the womb of Mary. 
womb there, I mean literal womb of Mary, certainly. But the womb in the sense of God had prepared the way through the believing Jews for this time of the coming of Christ. In particular then, of course, there needed to be a Mary. And to read of her humble submission to God's will in Luke chapter 1 and her immortal hymn of praise that God had chosen her for this uh, role to be the mother of our Lord. Mary, there needed to be a Mary. And she was ready because she was a believer before the angels came to her, before the announcement was given, before she was chosen. She was of the true messianic community. But you know, there also needed to be a Joseph. Not in the sense of conception, but a man to take her to wife, to protect her, and to provide for her and the child. Remember his humble submission to God when the angel came to him? Because he found out that Mary was pregnant and he was going to put her away or divorce her quietly because he didn't want to shame her, but he couldn't go forward with this. He thought she'd been unfaithful. But then comes the angel, speaks to Joseph, and he submits and immediately takes her. Doesn't necessarily mean the next hour, but in the next possible moment, he joins in marriage. He provides protection for her, a cover for her. And then we know the story of them going to, to Bethlehem and the birth there. Joseph was with and guiding all the way. And then We have this attempt of the wicked uh, Herod to kill the baby, Jesus. But the angel comes to Joseph, not to Mary, but to Joseph. And he says, take the mother and the child and go to Egypt because they will seek to destroy the child. Obeys, takes them, goes to Egypt. Think of all that that involved. You know, one night you're sitting there paying your taxes in Bethlehem, ready to go back to Nazareth, and you're told to just up and go and fly to another country you've never been to. And all of this, instant obedience by Joseph. Then while he was in Egypt, the Lord came to him again and said, take the child back. And just Joseph is, 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 a, is, a, is a great hero of the faith. And he was part of the woman that brought forth the Messiah. He is the Messianic community, part of the Messianic community that brought forth the Messiah. And of course, there was Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were the parents of John the Baptist, who John the Baptist was, they, all three of them were part of the Messianic community, preparing the way of the Lord. And so when we think of this birth here, certainly in the historical manifestation of the actual birth, Mary is in view, Joseph, her husband, is in view, but the whole Messianic community is really the point here in bringing this child into the world. Because if you look at it, we have to go back to all of the faithful mothers and fathers of Israel who brought forth the line that led to the Messiah. We think of Abraham, Read about his faith in Romans 4, 17 to 22. And though his body was dead and the wife of his wife's body was dead, he did not stumble at the promise of God, but he believed that God was able to do something that was physically impossible to have the seed who would carry on the Abrahamic covenant and lead ultimately to Christ. But then there was his wife Sarah, whose body had ceased the, the normal processes of life, it was impossible for her to have a child. 
physically. But God said she would have a child, and she did. Because Hebrews 11 tells us she was a woman of faith. And so in a sense, the whole, the whole history of people like Abraham and Sarah, how about Boaz and Ruth, and the story that's given to us there in the Old Testament, they were part of the line that led to David, and of course David's line led to Christ. Ruth and Boaz were the great-grandparents of David. Read their beautiful story. They're part of the woman that brought forth the man-child. The final one in that process, of course, was Mary and Joseph. But it was the church wherein Christ was brought into the world. Now let's look at the description of this child who was brought forth by the woman. And she brought forth, she gave birth to a man-child. Now the gender of the child is very emphatic in the original. Something like this. She brought forth a son, and I mean a male. (laughs) I mean a man-child. This son, this man-child, is the Messiah. Because it says this child was to rule the nations. The one who was about to rule the nations. He was ordained to that role, to that calling. And the phrase who was to rule the nations with a rod of iron, is based specifically on Psalm 2, 6-9, which we've referred to repeatedly, and I'm not going to go back to that psalm right now again, but it's reference to Psalm 2, which is a promise of the Messiah. But it's also based, that is the phrase of ruling all nations with this rod of iron. It's based on Psalm 110, verses 1-2, to and other Old Testament prophecies that speak of the reign of the Messiah. In other words, he was born to reign. He was born to be a king. But the path to the throne, surprisingly, was one of suffering, humiliation, and ultimately execution by the Romans. But all of that is passed over in this vision Because the point here is that the man-child was the Messiah who would rule over all the nations of the earth. Here's an Old Testament prophecy about this man-child who would rule. Daniel 7, 13-14. I saw the night visions, and behold, one like unto the Son of Man, a male, a man-child, I saw one like the Son of Man, who came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him, notice the pronouns, given him dominion, that is rule, and glory, and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. That's Daniel 7, 13 to 14. How about this one? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. 
upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And so this is the man-child. And we could go to uh, scores of other Old Testament passages with similar import. This was the child. This is the Messiah in verse 5. She brought forth the Messiah is the sense. And this, the Messiah, was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But then we're told this next. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So in the vision, we go from the birth of Christ to his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of God. Where do we see the ascension? He was caught up unto God. That's his ascension, which is described in the Bible and how the Lord Jesus ascended from earth in the clouds of heaven to God. And he was seated upon his throne, and he came to his throne. So here we have the ascension and the enthronement of Christ at the right hand of God, such as Psalm 110 speaks of. The earthly ministry of Christ and his death and resurrection are not specifically spoken of. But John and his readers did not need to be told this. They already knew these things of assurity. They understood that the ascension presupposes the death that the death excuse me, presupposes the resurrection, and the resurrection presupposes his death. That the ascension is the result of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil. Because the point in the context is that the dragon was completely defeated by Christ. His whole life was one of victory over Satan. But the culmination of that victory came at his ascension and his enthronement at the right hand of God the Father. The dragon sought to kill him from the time of his birth. We looked at that last week in Herod's deadly plot to kill all the the male children in Bethlehem. But Satan was unsuccessful. And then when Satan finally thought he won by getting Christ crucified, lo and behold... He was only fulfilling the very plan of God and ensuring his own doom. He has been defeated. The man-child has triumphed. And the implication of that dragon's defeat are spelled out for us in verses 7 to 12. But before we get to those, we note verse 6, and we have now the flight of the woman into the wilderness for a place of protection. So we move from the attempts of the devil in the early parts of the vision to keep the woman from bringing forth the man-child who will destroy him and defeat him. But he fails. God keeps the messianic community intact, and through his servants like Mary and Joseph, the man-child is born. During Christ's ministry, the devil tried to kill him many times, but he failed. But then he thought he succeeded. But his crucifixion, Christ's crucifixion, was really Satan's defeat. And then we have him, the victory summarized in that he was caught up to God as a victorious conqueror. And he has taken his seat on the right hand of God, the throne of God. What does that victory mean? 
Well, verses 7 and 12 will explain it. First, we have given this picture in the vision of the flight of the woman into the wilderness. Interestingly, this confirms, I think, the interpretation that the woman is not specifically Mary, but the church of God, the Israel of God, the Messianic community of Israel. She fled. Now, why she fled and where she fled and all of that is just mentioned here briefly when it says the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that she should feed, they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. In verses 13 and 17, we are given an expansion on that verse. And so I'm not going to take much time to comment it on here. We will wait till we get to verses 13 to the end of the chapter. But let's just note this, that the woman, that is the messianic community of Israel, has to flee after the ascension, sometime after the ascension. I think it's sort of like this. Satan failed to defeat Christ. He knows he's been defeated. Christ came, Satan tempted him, tried to get him off the course. All the things that happened, Jesus stayed true to the Father, to the end. His his resurrection proved that he had been God's anointed to save the world from its sin. His his, uh, ascension to the right hand of God the Father put him completely out of Satan's power of any sort. Because when he was on earth, Satan could attack him. He can't, even, he can't do a thing to Christ. So where does he turn his anger now? The man-child has come and triumphed and is gone. Now his only hope is to defeat the woman, the church on earth. And so Satan's malice and hatred is focused with, with a laser focus upon God's people. His only hope is to destroy the church. His only hope that's left to him, and it's not much of a hope, but it's still to this deceived, stupid devil, the only hope he has, and that is to destroy the church. And so now we move to the history after the ascension of Christ. Prior to the ascension of Christ, the history was Satan trying to destroy the woman and the potential seed. After the seed did come, he couldn't stop that. The seed triumphs. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He can't, Satan can't touch him. His only hope now is to put all of his malice and all of his hatred toward the church. And if he can defeat the church, he thinks that perhaps he might yet prevail in the end. For isn't it to the church the Great Commission is given? And if the church utterly fails, will not Satan still be able to hold his power? This is how the devil thinks. We know better, but he doesn't. But his hope is to destroy and defeat the church. And so all of his malice is turned upon the church. And that malice in the first century was turned upon the Jewish messianic community after the ascension of Christ. And he poured out all of his venom on them. And then at the very culmination of this venom, when the Romans came into the Jewish-Roman war, and they would have destroyed and wiped out, as it were, the Jewish nation, the Lord provided protection for the true church in Palestine during that time. And that's what I think is being spoken of here in these these verses. Jesus told the church in the Olivet Discourse, when they saw the signs, 
beginning to be fulfilled. When they saw the Roman armies surround Jerusalem, he said, get out of town, get to the hills, flee. And if you don't, you're going to be caught up in the conflagration. Well, the church kept that in mind. They never let it go. And when these events unfolded in the Jewish-Roman War and the Roman armies came, the Christians, the Jewish Christians, because this is still Palestine, the Jewish Christians fled as a whole. And we'll deal with that a little bit more extensively later on. But that's what this verse is talking about. God prepared a place to hide them during the, the uh, culmination of this terrible season of suffering and warfare. Now we go to chapter 12, verses 7 to 12. All right, we're going to look now at this war. Between the dragon and his angels and Michael and his angels. Now concerning these verses, R.C.H. Lenski says this, concerning verses 7 to 12. Here, the effect and result of the Savior's incarnation and his enthronement is portrayed symbolically, end quote. In other words, the effect and result of verse 5 is in verses 7 to the end of verse 12 portrayed for us symbolically. He further states this, the picture of the battle is illumined by the voice and its song of triumph. And unless we read in the light of this song, the battle will not be understood. Either it will remain an enigma, a mystery, or be interpreted in fanciful ways, which amounts to the same thing. End quote. So what he's saying here, we have a vision in verses 7 to 9 of this war between the dragon and his angels and Michael and his angels. There's our vision, 7 to 9. In verses 10 and 12, we have an interpretation of the vision by a voice from heaven. The two go closely together. Verses 10 and 11 particularly help us understand verses 7, 8, and 9. What we see here is there was a war initiated by Jesus Christ. Now, when did that war begin? What was the initiation of the war? Well, it ultimately began at his incarnation, but the war was initiated by Christ when he went to the Jordan, was baptized himself of John, and then began his public ministry, which, by the way, was preceded by 40 days in the wilderness where Satan came and tempted him. And so the spiritual battle began right after his baptism. There was a war in heaven, or there was a war to control earth. The war took place in the sphere of who was going to control this world. Who was going to have dominion over the world? Because heaven is the, when we speak of heaven here, it's the place of control. And it speaks of the sky, not the third throne third heaven of God's throne. And so this sky is the backdrop of the vision again. There was war in heaven. John's getting a vision. He's looking in the sky. As he sees the vision, the first thing that appears on the, in the sky is the woman, verse 1 and 2. Then there appears this dragon, this grotesque dragon, and his, his tail drawing a third part of the stars down. 
And then the vision shifts to the woman bringing forth a child. And so, so he's, he's seeing this vision. And in the, then in the vision, he sees the woman fleeing to the wilderness. Next in the vision in heaven that he's seeing in, in, in the sky is he sees Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels. And prevailed not. Who? The dragon didn't prevail. Neither was there found any more place in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. There's the vision. Now here's the interpretation by the voice in heaven. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. So the vision now moves to the war. Now this war, as I said, does not begin at Christ's ascension. This war begins with Christ's ministry. And so when we we look at this, we have to understand that the war that was fought on and portrayed on the backdrop of heaven was initiated by Christ. One of the things that we find so often is the erroneous thought that Satan's the one who's always on the attack. And we're all defense, defense, defense. Well, that's not the Bible. The Bible is God's on the attack. Satan's the one's on defense. We say, what about Ephesians 6, about the armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil? Well, we, remember when we studied that? What armor is being pictured there? The Romans. What were the Romans about? Conquering the world. Their armor wasn't given to defend Rome, but to conquer the world. Our armor is given to us to be conquerors. We're more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. So this war in heaven is initiated by Christ coming into the world and the beginning of his ministry. And it is a spiritual war. That's what's being told here. And this war is is described here symbolically. The spiritual war is given in a symbolic vision, and I believe it's between the woman and the dragon for the control of the earth. That's what the battle is about. What's the dominion mandate? Have you ever heard that term? Well, it's found in Genesis chapter 1. After God creates man, it says he gave them dominion. Over the earth. He says, have dominion over the earth and subdue it. He made mankind the rulers of the earth. He gave to mankind his wonderful uh, created being, man and woman. He gave to them lordship over the earth. They were to be the rulers under God of the earth. They were to have control. But something happened. They rebelled against God. Satan came tempted Eve, and Adam followed in the temptation, and they fell from their position of dominion. And dominion passed from the hands of man into the deceptive 
hands of the serpent. Man lost his freedom under God and became a slave of the devil. Man's lost his dominion. That's why we're told in Hebrews that Christ came, quoting Psalm 8, to restore dominion to man. And this warfare to to restore dominion to man and take it away from Satan, who had stolen it through his lies and deceptions, is what this war is about here. Remember I said it's in the sky, it's for the control of the earth. Who will have dominion? Satan says, I've got it. Men are my slaves. Christ came incarnate. He was a man. He came to restore dominion to mankind and to take it away from Satan. And that's what this is a picture of when Christ came. A war broke out in history. The backdrop was heaven. The stakes were the control of the earth. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So they're the combatants. Michael and his angel, and the dragon and his angels. Who is being pictured here under the designation of Michael? The name Michael means who is like God. That could either be a question or a declaration. Michael could mean this person is like God. Or it could be a question just, you know, to show how great God is. Who is like God? No one. We don't know exactly what the reference is here, but this name Michael is used three times in the Old Testament concerning one who appears in the visions of Daniel. Daniel chapter 10, 13, and 21, and chapter 12, verse 1. Michael, in those passages, is called one of the chief princes. One of the chief princes. Now, that word one probably means not one in number, but rank. Better translated, first. Michael, first in rank of the chief princes. Now, the princes in this passage happen to be the angelic beings, as chapter 10, verse 13 makes clear. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Michael again is seen in a vision by Daniel, and he's called the great prince who stands up for the people of Israel. Who is this Michael? Many think he is an archangel, the chief angel. But also many others think that this, no, no. You look at Michael, you look at the the designations, you come to this passage in Revelation that Michael here, who is the chief of the, the angels, is really the pre incarnate Christ. And the, the, ter- the, the name Michael, who is like God, is a designation of Christ. He is the first of the angelic or first in rank over the angelic beings. He is the chief of the angels. He is the chief of Israel. He is the prince of Israel. And really, to call him the chief, Michael, that is, of the princes, the great prince of Israel, is the same as calling him the captain of the Lord's host. 
Because the Lord's hosts are the angels and the people of Israel. And this Michael is over them. He's the captain of the Lord's host. Now listen to this from Joshua. As they were preparing to attack Jericho, an amazing event took place. A mighty man appeared to Joshua. Joshua didn't know who he was. And he said, who are you? What side are you on? Are you for us or are you for them? And here's the response, quoting. And he said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord, am I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. And saith unto him, what saith my Lord to his servant? First of all, in the Bible, whenever somebody, an angel appears and, and men are overwhelmed with that appearance and they fall down on their faces to worship, what does the angel immediately say? Get up. I'm a fellow servant of God. Worship God. That's the answer always. When angel, this captain of the host doesn't say that at all. And the captain of the Lord's host saith unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. That's Joshua 5, 14 to 15. Does that sound like that last phrase sound like something else you remember? When the Lord, the angel of the Lord, appeared to Moses in the burning bush, what did he say to him? Take the shoes from off your feet. For the ground whereon you stand is holy ground. And then it says, and the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, spoke out of the bush. This is an appearance of God to Joshua. But he's called the captain of the Lord's host. Just like Michael was called the first, the chief of the Lord's host. And just as the captain of the Lord's host in the Old Testament led Joshua and Israel in their war against the dark kingdom of Satan in Canaan, so here in this highly symbolic passage we see the captain of the Lord's host, Christ, under the designation of Michael, who is like God, leading the church in their war with the satanic enemies of the woman and her seed. And to designate Christ here as Michael is consistent with our context. In fact, I think the context requires it. Because the great conflict here is between the woman, the man-child, and the dragon. Not between angels and the dragon. The woman and Christ are the central subjects of the chapter. And to now make an angel the central subject of the war against Satan is erroneous, in my opinion. We saw earlier in chapter 10 that Christ there was portrayed as a mighty angel come down from heaven. We saw the description of that mighty angel had all the marks of deity about him. And then later on, he calls the two witnesses in chapter 11 who are witnessing for my witnesses. No angel would say that if an angel stood before us here, he wouldn't look at us and say, you're my witnesses. The angel would say, you're God's witnesses, just like I am. And so in chapter 10 and 11, we saw this mighty angel who was a picture of Christ. And what might help us here is that the angel of the Lord, who was the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament, 
And I think being set forth under that image in chapter 10, we now see the pre-incarnate Christ who had the Old Testament title of Michael appearing here in the book of Revelation. Now some have a trouble with identifying Christ with Michael because some of the cults have uh, abused this teaching. And they say, well, you know, Jesus is not really the son of God. He's just a mighty angel. He's the, he is Michael, but that means he's just a mighty angel. But he's not deity. He's not the son of God. Well, you know, I really don't care what the cults teach on that as far as, oh, I can't hold to that view that he is Michael because they said he's Michael. Uh, they can say what they want. The Bible stands alone on its own. I believe Michael is Christ here because Michael is a divine being. Not, he's not a created being. He is the uh, pre-incarnate Christ under the title, Who is Like God? Serving Israel in the Old Testament. Here again, we see him appear in this highly symbolic vision because as, as the captain of the Lord's host led Israel in the Old Testament, so the captain of the Lord's host leads the church in this spiritual warfare in the first century. If Michael is a reference to Jesus Christ, then how should we understand the ones who are his angels? Again, since the context is the conflict between the woman and the man-child, and the dragon and the man-child is Christ, then it seems likely that the angels are none other than Christ's disciples in this vision, symbolic vision. In other words, the people who make up the woman whose child now rules over the woman because he was raised to the throne of God are the angels of this vision. Wait a minute, how can that be? An angel's an angel. Well, let's... Oh, yeah, I agree. But what does the word angel mean? (laughs) Our English word angel makes us think instantly of supernatural beings in the service of God and men. But the Greek word angel does not give that immediate connotation at all. The Greek word angel, angelos, simply refers to a messenger or an envoy who announces something or gives a message on behalf of another. That's what an angel was. Angelos is the Greek word. Literally, messenger. And so you could and I think should translate it this way. And there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his messengers fought against the dragon and his messengers. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 7, verse 24, it says, And when the messengers of John were departed, John the Baptist, they, John had sent them to question Jesus. John was in prison, so he sent some messengers on his behalf. It says, And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John, that is, Jesus did. And uh, what went ye out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Luke seven twenty-four. Let me read that. Literally, and it's not literally, but using the Greek word for messenger. And when the angels of John were departed. It's the same word that's used in our passage here. Translated angels of 
Michael? Angels of John. What does it mean there? Supernatural beings? Obviously, not at all. Context makes it very clear they were envoys of John. They were his representatives. They were sent by him to ask questions and get answers. And so there's an example in the New Testament of where an angel literally and simply refers to a disciple of John who is John's messenger. And I believe in this passage, Michael's angels are the disciples of Christ and his messengers. We saw that it was used of John the Baptist envoys, his disciples, but it was also used of John himself. This word, angel, angelos. It says this in Mark, 120, Mark chapter 1, 2 and 3. And as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before me. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, who is the messenger here? It's so obvious. It's John the Baptist. But let me give you the literal. Behold, I will send my angel before thy face. John the Baptist is called an angel. But he, what, what, does this mean he's a supernatural being that uh, lives and operates in a, in a sphere different than us? Of course not. This is the flesh and blood John is called an angel. That is a messenger. For that's what the word means. Literally. And any Greek hearing angel would not think of supernatural beings, but messenger. Someone sent with a message, an envoy, who was there to represent another. By the way, it's also used of Jesus' disciples in the New Testament. When Jesus was about ready to go into Samaria, it says this, quote, And he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered in a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. Let me give you the literal. And he sent angels before his face. And they went and entered a village. Obviously, this is human beings. These are disciples that are sent by Jesus as his messengers, his envoys ahead of him. Paul says this. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, he despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. That could better have been translated, you received me as a messenger of God. Paul's talking about his apostolic preaching to the Galatians. And then when he came and he was preaching to them, they received him as God's envoy, that he was God's messenger. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, chapter 2, 1, 8, 12, 18, and so on. Remember the letters of the churches were addressed to who? The angels of the church. And there we argue that the angels there are not supernatural beings, that they either refer to the messengers that John was to send the messages through to the seven churches, or it referred actually to the churches themselves, that the whole church was called an angelos, because it was, the whole church was ordained to be a messenger. Amen. And so here in Revelation, this whole idea of angels is firmly fixed in the beginning. We looked at some other passages where this phrase, angels, which often refers to supernatural beings, granted, but context determines its meaning. And in this context, the angels of Michael are his messengers, Christ's messengers, Christ's apostles. And so the battle in this passage is between Christ and his apostles and Satan and his false apostles, between Christ and his true preachers and Satan and his false teachers. 
That's the battle of history, my friends. Christ has his envoys and representatives and messengers after his ascension. He's in heaven, but he has his messengers here. Satan does not take physical appearances here, but he has his messengers who are fighting against Christ's messengers. False teachers versus true teachers determines history. You think it's unimportant that we speak the truth here? Or any church speaks the truth? It is of the utmost importance. History is being determined by the church, large or small, wherever it be, that it speaks the truth as messenger of Christ. So this is the spiritual battle. It's between truth and error. It's between Christ and his disciples and Satan and his disciples. Does this mean that supernatural beings have no place in the battle? Well, we know from other passages that God has given angels to help the church. They've been sent to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. Angels are involved in the battle, but only in the secondary sense. They're not the preachers. Angels don't do the teaching. Angels don't do the witnessing. Angels aren't the evangelists. They just help preachers, teachers, evangelists. Okay, they, they take in the spiritual war, Satan wants to shut up Peter. So he puts him in prison. God sends an angel, sets him free. So angels are involved in that very secondary sense. It's the same thing on Satan's side. Demons don't do the preaching. Men do. Women do. But they're inspired by demons. Demons are there to assist them in their rebellion. So there is that dimension. But in this passage, the image here is between Christ and his followers, his disciples, and the dragon, Satan, and his messengers. His messengers. As Milton Terry says in his commentary on Revelation, We accordingly understand Michael and his angels to be here a symbolic designation of Christ and his apostles, together with all the angelic forces in sympathy and cooperation with them. So he sees that Michael is Christ, the angels are his apostles, but he also recognizes that the sweep here would engage the fact that good angels are used in the help of the church. Then if we apply that to the next one, the dragon fought in his angels, we understand that it is Satan with his emissaries, his false teachers, his false prophets, his false religionists who are at work. And that they are assisted as well by spiritual forces that we call demons. So that's the battle. That's what we're talking about here. This is not a battle that took place in primeval times, with the fall of Satan, or during the Old Testament. This happened in the first century. This is a picture of the battle to found the church in the world. When Christ ascended, what did he do before he ascended? Did he have a church in the world? No. He had a handful of maybe 500 dedicated believers. There was no church anywhere yet. The job of founding the church was given to his angels, his messengers, particularly his apostles. It was to these angels the Great Commission was given, to these messengers. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. 
What power? The power that we saw here summarized in his being raised to God and put on his throne. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. So go and preach, go and baptize, go and teach. You're my angelos, my angels. The Great Commission was given to them. And it was on the backs of the church that the whole enterprise of God fell to establish the church in the first century. And Satan saw that. And so he then put all of his hatred and venom and tried to crush the church before the church had a foundation, before it was established in the world. And so the first century persecutions are a picture of Satan's Intense desire to destroy and crush the infant church before it fulfilled its commission to establish the church in all the world. Our time is up. We'll have to pick this um, study up next week. This is profound passages of Scripture. It gives us an understanding of uh, really the history of the New Testament and the founding of the church. The founding of the church. That's what this is a battle about. And we will develop this more next week. We will look a little bit further at what this means by the dragon and his angels, his overthrow and the victory that came to Christ and his followers. Lord, we thank you for this day and this Lord's Day service. Help us to see in this highly symbolic passage the fundamental truths that are being taught here. That there is a war going on. It began in the first century. And the first phase was to stop the church from fulfilling the Great Commission. And the persecution of the early church is being explained to them and to us. But we know the battle still rages. The kingdom is not complete. There are many rebels yet in this world, nations and individuals. The church is still going forth. And this battle in our day is the same. And we are Michael's angels, his messengers. But we are opposed by the dragon and his angels, his messengers. We're in a spiritual war. Give us insight. Give us courage. Give us faith to be faithful in it. In Jesus' name, amen.